So welcome to another episode of the Shredder Show. Uh, super excited to have a very special guest uh, on the show today. So I got recommended to this amazing lady from a great friend and mentor of mine, Dr. Dean, who's the wizard of all things nutrition and supplementation for men. And this is very much the female version of it. I'm very um, excited to introduce you all to, who's Olivia Wachowski. Wachowski, I've just known I've just made an accident hash on that. I'll try not to make a hash with your surname. So um, Olivia is a women's health coach. And uh, one of the favorite things I look when you look at her Instagram profile, which is the lifting doula is uh, fixing clients to do fucked up, which says a lot about her expertise in terms of fixing female hormones. And she's also the founder of uh, Femtech, which we talked a little bit about today is quite an interesting topic, which is a female um, ring, I believe, in terms of tracking your menstrual cycle. So today we're really going to go through in terms of uh, what women need to look at in terms of um, female hormone optimization for fat loss and overall health. And so thank you so much for your time today, Olivia. No, thank you for having me on. Some a uh, great intro, intro there, and some big, big hype up to live up to. Um, definitely, don't think I'm the female dean, but I will, I will definitely take being like a five percent of him, a five percent of the female dean. Um, but, but to correct me, I know I just made a hash of your surname, and you already confirmed it before. What's your surname? Before I make it, uh, everyone corrects me. Orhovsky. It's all right. Every, everyone who is Polish or from that like Eastern European block is just going to be shaking their head hearing you say <laughs> it. Um, but yeah, Lubia Orhovsky. My parents were from Poland and immigrated to Australia in the 80s. Um, so to delve into things, get straight straight to where we want to go to, and I'm sure the audience will listen to. When you first have a woman who's coming to you and say they've been trying to lose weight in regards to they've been in a calorie deficit, um, apostrophe, they've been working out, and yet they can't, they're not seeing any progress, where would you go with them in terms of, maybe they're looking to say, try and say they think they've got a metabolism problem, hormonal problem. Where would you so go in terms of first points of call to try and identify what the issue is and then looking to right, try and rectify that, obviously depending on what it is. Yeah, for sure. So I think it's really important that obviously it, it's important to note that sometimes there is going to be issues that we see with, the thyroid, for example, like that there is sometimes going to be that as an underlying issue. But what we have to remember when we think of the thyroid is that the thyroid is like our regulator for stress. So when we are working at too high of a capacity, when we are overtraining, when we are under eating, that is how we're going to see our thyroid being impacted. So when we see a woman who has been overtraining and under eating at the starting point, and has thyroid issues, then obviously reversing what that stressor is, is going to be one of the biggest, biggest keys there. When we're talking about women who have come to me and are struggling to lose weight, the overwhelming majority of them, and I'm talking like 95% of the women who have come to me in my life don't eat enough none of them eat enough all of them are under eating protein and, and any coach that that has coached women will know what it's like trying to get women to actually eat like 2.2 grams of protein per kilogram of body weight it's it's impossible it is so hard to get them eating protein but they are all under eating every single one of them um so that's probably one of the first places right so when you're even looking at the menstrual cycle it's so important to know that after you're ovulating, you're actually burning 300 more calories, on average, about 300 more calories after ovulation. And the thing is, you've already got women who are working in a huge deficit, and then their metabolic capacity is actually increased after ovulation where they're burning even more calories. So they're running on fumes. So any woman that is coming to me from the very beginning and saying to me, I'm struggling to lose weight, I'm having issues with, with fat loss, I can guarantee you she's not eating enough. And if she's eating enough, there's an issue with her thyroid. That, that's where it starts to break down. Um, when we're also looking at like all our steroid pathways, I mean, steroid pathways are really complicated and we're not going to go into like a lot of detail because you'd need, you'd honestly need a few hours of talking about them, right? But when we're talking about steroid pathways and how our hormones are actually produced and how testosterone is produced and how estradiol is produced and what the the process we go through to go from pregnant alone to progesterone when we're ovulating all of that is really complicated and all of those have enzymes which are responsible for them to occur and those enzymes are impacted by external factors they're impacted by 
environmental stresses, they're impacted by pollutants and all of this shit, right? And they're also dependent on a lot of nutrients. So we're looking straight away into how much are they eating and what's the quality of the food they're eating. Those would be the two things that I'm always looking to with women. When um, when you talk about quality of food, is there certain foods you would that you see come time and time again that um, are like instant red flags you'd want women to avoid? Oh God, it's, but do you know, it's not even just women avoiding them. It's everyone avoiding them if possible. All of that fake meat shit that isn't, it's like your, your burgers that are like 50 grams of protein for this fake shit. That is just the straightaway, the thing I'm like, just like, that's not food to me. Um, and I can understand that, you know, there's, there's a lot of people out there who have um, like eating disorders in their history and they're really triggered around like certain groups. So you can't be too aggressive with them in being like, no, you can only eat, you know, a paleo model. You can only eat this or whatever it may be. But everyone is eating just so much packaged processed shit these days. And when we're talking about real good quality food, you know, grass fed steaks or, um, or produce that is coming from a farmer. No one's eating any of that shit. Everything is convenience. Everything is about if it fits your macros in like a, a small subsect of more so in like the bodybuilding community, but like this small subsect of people where it's like, if it fits your macros, it's fine. I can eat like shit as long as it fits my macros. Um, but yeah, the, the main thing is that we aren't going to good quality sources of meat that are grass fed, pasteurized or fed with organic food. And we aren't getting produce from farmers. We aren't getting produce from small grocers. And all of that is going to have more micronutrients in it because if you go through the whole process of agriculture and topsoil and how disrupted that is in like modern agriculture and, and mass production and farming, that's not as bad in small farms, in farms that practice regenerative agriculture so that would be yeah the, the main things people aren't actually eating real food and if you want to eat real food then look to small farmers and grass-fed um, interestingly you brought it up it wasn't something i was going to discuss but was um the if it fits your macros approach for a lot of people listening to that they presume just simple math and calories of pop tarts that's the same as eating two thousand calories of grass-fed steak and rice um do you want to explain maybe like the differences of in terms of food topics with that like with that or some of the issues you've had with that and I think a lot of that sometimes is maybe people's psychological addiction to certain foods oh yeah for sure and it's it's really hard because um I mean there's obviously like levels of nutritional literacy right someone who has no nutritional literacy doesn't have any concept of macros whatsoever maybe for them focusing on just protein just fat just carbs and working on those three is going to be the best introduction but when we're talking about like what that actual quality of nutrients is in there it's not the same fucking thing like you're comparing it's not even comparing apples and oranges because both of them are more micronutrient dense than some of the shit people eat that's in packages when we're looking at like protein in in a pop tart and protein in a steak obviously you can go cool there's 20 grams of protein here 20 grams of protein there pulling pop tart figures out of my ass right now because i've never had one in my life um but you're not looking at the nutrients you're not looking at the essential amino acids you're not looking at the iron you're not looking at the copper you're not looking at the b vitamins you're not looking at any of that stuff and when i like to look at food i don't necessarily look at it as unhealthy or healthy i really look at it as nutrient dense or lacking nutrients is it high calories for how little nutrients it has or is it high calories for how many nutrients it has and that's always going to be the tipping the tipping point because like you look at something like salmon right like a fillet of salmon it's crazy high calories it usually takes up most people's fat content for the day particularly women if you're sitting around 50 grams of fat for the day right that usually chews up a fair portion of your fats and it's really hard to justify having those fats in that little tiny ass piece of salmon when you can have so much more and i understand that but also then when you start to go into the nuance of fats and you're looking at ratios of omega-3 to omega-6 to omega-9 and how heavily 
dense our diets are in omega-6s and omega-9s as opposed to how lacking they are in omega-3s, that's where things like if it fits your macro starts to fall through. You know, we you would see this more often than I do because I am more removed from the bodybuilding world at the moment. I don't coach clients who are in the bodybuilding world. But you would see this all the time with competitors and maybe you're doing it at the moment where it's like your nutrition is very limited with what you're eating you're not dicking around with variety it's like chicken rice broccoli chicken rice some form of you know vegetable chicken sweet potato some form of vegetable red meat sweet potato some form of vegetable and it's very very limited um and so that's not to say that you obviously because i mean that's better than how many you know pop tarts and that's not to say that um there's a problem with that because when you're not going crazy with lots of lots of variety it's easier for digestion it's easier to find out what trigger foods are but there are flaws in such restricted diets as well. 100%. I think um, one of the interesting things with that, that you brought up actually in terms of talking about fats, and I think this is a lot, like, I find it fascinating with the media how different things get demonized. So for a while it'll be like carbohydrates are the devil. For a while it'll be like, don't eat fats. It's like, you'll make you fat. Do you want to explain to any like the women listening or the guys listening in terms of maybe why we need fats in our diets, maybe like hormone function, the importance of that? Because I think, that's one of the things you actually you mentioned in terms of obviously I'm prepping for a show at the moment. The big thing I notice is if I don't have enough fats earlier on in the day, I'm so hungry by the end of the day that that that's like a big trigger for me. If I realize, okay, I haven't taken my fish oil or something, I really notice that because my hunger suddenly spikes through the roof because of the satiety effect of that. Yeah. So from from a woman perspective, right? Women actually use more intramyocellular lipid stores when they're doing endurance training. When we're dipping below 0.7 grams per kilogram of body weight in fats, we actually see a lot of adverse things happening with hormones when, and, and health. When we are really low in omega-3 status, there's a lot of links with really heavy painful periods and lower back pain for women who are having low levels of omega-3 status. So... I mean, fats, you could go on all day about how important they are in the diet, what what you actually need, but you need to like, it's the same thing as like protein and carbs, right? Every single one of them is important. Every single one for when we're talking about what your body actually needs and how it's going to be utilizing all of that. When we're talking about the menstrual cycle, you're also going to have periods where fats are more preferential to be used as a fuel source. So after ovulation, fats are a little bit more preferential. Does that mean you have to change your entire nutrition around to move into a keto mode? No. If you're going to snack on something, should you lean for like more of like a fatty snack? Yes. Um, but all of every single one of these macros is going to be really, really crucial to like in its most like layman's description, a healthy body, right? Um Every single person without going into like even studies or hard evidence or anything like that, or going into the nitty gritty of it, pull someone down to 20 grams of fat a day and see how they feel. Every single person is going to feel like an absolute bag of shit. And what happens with all of the food that is like low fat, where they pull all of that fat out and it's skinny and it's skim all of that food is then just fucking plowed with sugars to make you feel better, to make it taste better, to make it not taste like shit. Because from like a cooking perspective, fat is like what's giving it that thickness and that like juiciness. Um, so yeah, like look, I, fat, fats are very, very crucial. I find that uh, highly amusing that you brought that up because one of my big things is people think like the low fat yogurts are the greatest thing in the world but they're like if you look on the back of like a strawberry low fat yogurt it's just like 50 percent sugar basically i honestly i people have I, I remember doing a post on this on social media like two years ago where it was like how to actually read a label and i remember being like oh, this seems really basic like it seems really basic to be explaining to people how to read the back of a label but people don't know and like people don't check it. Like they don't look at the backs of labels outside of like, oh, protein, yep, yeah, meets my protein. Oh, low, low fat's great. Um, or like the advertisement on the front that says low fat. People just don't really look at labels and like what's actually in food. Um, the low fat yogurts, yogurts are the pit. They are awful. I don't know why you would want to eat a low fat yogurt. 
Yes. Probably because your coke has you on 20 grams of fats for the day. (laughs) Enough said with that one, I think. In regards to like, um, so for women listening to this, obviously we mentioned that say for example, Sam is very high in fat, very high in calories. Are there any fat sources you recommend for people that are a good staple for maybe women in terms of like to have moderate amounts of fats and, and calories? Good sources of fat, sorry, did you say? Um, yeah, good sources of fats that aren't uh, like crazy high in calories that you could maybe add into a diet. Well, I mean, fat calories are going to be the same regardless of which fat source you go to. Um, but when we're looking to certain sources of fats, I will always lean into omega-3 sources as a, and out of omega-6 and omega-9. That's not to say that they're not important, but those are so easily obtained through our diet. And if you're doing anything that's like takeout or fast food, you're going to hit those omega-6s and omega-9s like, like that. So what I will always, always push clients to is fatty fish, like your trout, your salmon, mackerel. Even if you look to things like sardines, one tin of sardines has over 50% of your recommended daily intake of calcium. Like we're, we're so depleted in calcium. How many people do you have that are intolerant to dairy or completely remove dairy outside of maybe like a whey protein when they're in prep? Because it's like so high calorie and, and not worth it. Um, so I will always push people into those omega-3 sources. Um, funnily enough, even when you look at some of the, the literature when you're talking about endometriosis, there's a lot of um, women who will say that their endometriosis symptoms went away or are worse when they were eating red meat. And so one of the really important things to distinguish there as well is that with endometriosis, we see an increase in endometriosis symptoms when women are deficient in omega-3s. And we actually see an increase in endometriosis symptoms with women who are eating a lot of seed oils, anything that's got, anything that's got like trans-unsaturated fats. Um, with this as well, and this is what I wanted to like circle back to, with this as well, grain-fed beef is really high in omega-6 to 3. So grain-fed beef actually has six times the amount of omega-6s versus 3s, whereas if you're going to grass-fed beef, it's actually a more preferential split of omega-6s and 3s. With grain-fed beef, the reason that it actually is so bad for women who have endometriosis and why I will push to grass-fed is because it's higher in something called palmitic acid and that's what makes the endometriosis symptoms worse. So this is what I was going back to when we were saying the start about food quality and where you're actually like sourcing things from. That matters a lot where it's not just, you know, comparing now steak to a Pop-Tart, but it's also where's that quality of steak coming from. Um, But, yeah, I will always be pushing into grass-fed grain-fed source, not grain-fed sources, sorry, grass-fed sources, organic, pasture-raised, and then good fatty seafoods. Do you have any issues with people using tin food? Obviously, you mentioned in terms of mackerels, because obviously the mackerel's mackerel, because as people talk about, obviously, like things link, leaking into the food from the tins and things like that. Do you have any um, thoughts on that? I aim for progress, not perfection. Yeah. Um in a perfect world, sure, you wouldn't eat out of tins. Um, but realistically, like I eat tin tuna because there's just no way that with my lifestyle and how busy I am that I'm going to be able to work around that. There, there's a like the health, there's a health food store in Melbourne that sells tuna in little glass jars. And it's like, oh, my God, it is like five times more expensive for the same size and I'm like oh man like okay I'll just like I'll take some NAC it'll be fine I'll help my liver detox anything but look in a perfect world yes you would decrease a lot of the the tinned stuff a lot of the stuff that is in plastic packages but if you're going to make allowances anywhere that's probably the one where I'm like okay well this is 
this is the one that we'll like not stress too much about. We'll focus on a lot of the other things because it's also like that quality of life, right? When you start to go, I don't want to say like too healthy, but when you start to go down that more holistic path where you're really looking at quality, where it's being sourced, all of the other shit, what can like possibly be the the endocrine disruptor for you, what can be the one that's like tipping you over the edge. It's really easy to go into like a deep dark hole and then be like, oh, well, fuck, I left my water bottle at home. I guess I can't drink any water today because nothing is filtered and everything at the service stations is in plastic bottles. So it's really hard to go down that path. But yeah, in, in a perfect world, you would decrease tins, but yeah. I, uh, interesting you say that. I, ha- I had something similar this morning. I had a really stupid idea in terms of buying, you know, you can get like blankets to protect you from like radiation when flying and all this other sort of shit. And I- I'd start to get myself more stressed out by the amount of crap that I have to try and do to optimize things that, that actually probably causes more damage than good. So like, I think it's what's uh, optimal versus what's practical all the time because you're never going to live in a, a perfect world where you're not going to have everything's going to be a thousand percent perfect. Yeah, and that, that, that's a really good way of putting it as well, where it's like optimal versus practical. There are small things you can do every single day. Um, I was actually reading something. It was from a um, doctor who specializes a lot in like, it, he wasn't an endocr- endocrinologist, but he specializes a lot in, in that work. And he was talking about how when you're actually pouring petrol into your car, if you stand not downwind from the petrol fumes, but on the other side, that one small action decreases like cancer risk by whatever percentage he was saying. It's like, you know, off the top of my head, I just remember that. But it's like that one small action where it's like, you're not completely crazy and fueling up your car with like a 10 meter stick trying to, to, to stay away from it, but you've just stood on the other side and you're not downwind from fumes blowing in your face. So there are ways where it's like you can make small allowances without going absolutely crazy. But once you start digging into the world of like biohacking and holistic health and trying to, to work around it, it's it's a slippery slope, I'll tell you that much. 100%. I've actually never thought about that petrol fumes thing. It just made me think that actually in Dubai, for example, where I live most of the time in the UK at the moment, that like you just drive into petrol station and fill a car for you, don't even have to get out and put a card, card reader through the window. So that, that's great. That's, at least I'm avoiding that living there. But um, you're avoiding it there. Maybe, maybe that's why. Maybe it's a health and safety policy in Dubai. To be fair, but I, I seriously doubt it. Um, yeah, we, don't, from we your... don't care about the people who work there. <laughs> uh, it's, yeah, respect to anyone who's been to Dubai. It's a bit of a sad state, and the fact that it's like a a three class society with Emiratis who who live there, um, expats, and everyone else. It's they don't have a great quality of life, but it's sad facts of the world, I guess. Um, Within your time in coaching, have you seen much change in example of like, I don't know, like food manufacturers and society trying to be a bit more optimal in terms of like food packaging and removing external toxins and um, factors from people's food and from like food sources? Um, I, I do think that there definitely has been a lot of improvements over the last five or so years. Um, particularly in Australia, when you're looking at anything that's like organic, there are a lot of stringent guidelines that you have to actually work towards to label as organic. Whereas prior to that, you could use the words like organic in your marketing um, and not actually be organic. Whereas now, if you're using any of that terminology, you have to have the certification. So every single country like Australia has their certification. There's one for EU and all of those are really important. So there definitely has been that change. But the thing that frustrates me is that like the other day I was going to buy mayonnaise and all the mayonnaise is in plastic bottles and you're like, okay, great. And then you go to the mayonnaise that's in glass and it's all canola oil and you're like, great, I don't want seed oils. And then you go to the mayonnaise that's in the plastic bottle that says olive oil and you flip the packet over and it says canola oil first with a little bit of olive oil and you're like you motherfuckers you bastards so yes there has been improvements with this kind of stuff but at the end of the day we're talking about multi-million dollar companies who want to make a profit and latch onto this shit like no tomorrow and will use buzzwords in their their label and their marketing and their branding and people just grab onto them and i've been caught by it so many times as well like i'm in a rush 
and I'm like, cool, got to grab like a tin of tuna olive oil. And then I get home and I'm like, oh, these bastards, it's canola oil in here. It's not olive oil. It's canola oil with like a little bit of olive oil flavor. Um, so I definitely think that there has been a change. It's obviously very different to different places in the world. So I can't speak, you know, about what, what, what might be going on in the UK, I should say, um, because even comparatively, the client base that I have that's in Australia and like their level of body literacy is very different to the client base that I have who is from the UK. Like they're just com- like complete opposite ends of the spectrum with what they know about their menstrual cycles, what they know about their health, what they prioritise. Um, I only learned the other day that in the UK you don't, you can just get T4 and T3. Like, I didn't know that that, that was the thing. And that's why I kept being like, where are all these people getting T4 and T3 from? Because um, you obviously can't get it in Australia, but yeah, it's completely different there. So there has been some improvements, but we definitely have a long way to go, I think. 100%. Uh, one of the things I wanted to delve into, which is a common topic we get with some of the older women coming to us is um, the effect of menopause and weight loss and people gaining weight necessarily through the menopause. Um, do you have any advice or guidance or things you do with clients to try and um, manage that period in their lives and optimize that, if that makes sense? Yeah, so menopause is a really tricky one. Um, what, what menopause is, is menopause is the 12 months after you have stopped bleeding. So you don't know you're in menopause until you hit 12 months and you're like, huh, okay, last time I had my bleed was 12 months ago. That's menopause. The period that a lot of people refer to as menopause, where they experience all those hot flushes, all of that, that's perimenopause. Both of them are going to come with their own separate issues as to what that woman is experiencing. Perimenopause is a time where we are not ovulating with as, as good, like our ovarian reserves are lower. We're not ovulating with as good quality of an egg, so we're not producing enough progesterone. That estrogen is then unopposed. When you look at the steroid pathways as well for how progesterone is made, there's a hormone called pregnenolone before it, and that often gets stolen by cortisol as well. So that's pregnenolone is what testosterone, it's what all these hormones are made from, but that goes into progesterone first. And that gets stolen by cortisol so you have now women who are not ovulating cortisol is stealing pregnenolone you have women who are stressed anyway who they're not eating enough they're not um they're going through you know shitty periods of sleep hot flushes they're uncomfortable they're experiencing fluid retention and you know there's so many reasons why why they could be experiencing this that is outside of um perimenopause you know looking at the nutrition their sodium like are they drinking are they supporting you know phase one and two estrogen detoxification are they supporting their liver are they shitting every day you know there's a lot that goes into it um but all of these women are like so your menopause and perimenopause like two totally different women right because menopause you have flatlined hormones essentially and perimenopause your hormones are all over the fucking shop so they're going to be two totally different things as far as like what can be getting them more results and fat loss, so to speak. In that perimenopause period, I'm really, really looking to prioritize protein. I'm really looking to prioritize fat sources, really looking to prioritize decreasing stress, which is, and this is the funny thing, right? Like I'm saying all these things where it's like, that's shit that people should be doing anyway. And so if you're doing this prior to going into your perimenopause period, you're probably going to find you're not going through those symptoms as aggressively as someone who isn't. The only women I've come across who have hectic perimenopause symptoms, and of course there's always going to be someone who's like, I did everything right and I still had a shitty time. But the only women I've come across who have really hectic perimenopause symptoms are unhealthy as fuck. They eat like 700 calories a day because they want to lose weight. They drink like 800 mils of water a day. It's always wine, 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 wine with the girls on the weekend. And they're like, oh, I can't lose this this situation on my stomach. I just, you know, 
why can't I lose weight? Well, you're not fucking doing anything right from the first place. It's it's not even perimenopause. But obviously, because what I just said that cortisol does steal pregnenolone, you are going to have some women who are in more of a state where they have more of that weight around their stomach because that's where we see a lot of cortisol receptors. Um, so really for those women, we're looking at decreasing stress, decreasing stimulus that is stressing them out, prioritizing sleep. It's fascinating. The answer to everything is always like the three same things, really. It is. And it's it's so, it's like, I feel like I, I wish I could give some better stuff. And I reckon someone's going to listen to this and be like, oh, this bitch doesn't know anything. She's saying the same thing. But really, it's it's the same shit over and over and over again and no one is doing it right like you have people coming to you with these really complicated complex issues and you're like cool talk to me about what you're eating and they're eating out of a packet and then you'll say to them okay cool you need to stop eating like this and go to like actual food oh well that's really restrictive I don't want to do that I don't know if I can remove all of this stuff from my diet um, so it, it's really the same. No one nails the basics. And then there are obviously people who nail the shit out of the basics and are kings of their training and, and nutrition and are, you know, have amazing physiques. They're in, in comp prep. Um, but then there's, there's other factors at play there as well. You know, they're not managing their training volume. They, their sleep isn't an, an issue for them. They're like, oh, no, I'll 11 p.m., 12 p.m., that's, that's fine. That's, that's not 12 a.m., sorry, that's not an issue um but yeah it's it's the same same thing over and over and over again uh, it's an expression i like i think i heard stan efting talk about when he was on the podcast and it was um like people not prioritizing sleep and then focusing on things like supplements is the equivalent of like stepping over dollars to collect dimes like people don't look at the basic most important things yet they want to go look at things that make like a 0.5 percent difference yeah, yeah, and this is this is one of the things that my um one of my girlfriends and I were talking about a couple of weeks ago. The, the there's like this growing population of people who are moving away from Western medicine because they've realised Western medicine isn't serving them. You go to the doctor when you're actually really sick, you've got an infection, something's wrong, you need to go to the hospital, and that's how they're treating doctors, which is fine. And you've got a lot of people going into more holistic practitioners nutritionists tcms um, naturopaths that's all well and good but they're applying the same allopathic model to those practitioners and they go with these chronic issues and they just go to the naturopath and say what supplement can you give me what supplement can i do to fix my high testosterone levels well there, there is no fucking supplement you you're not doing any of the basics so it's like applying that same, well, I went to the doctor, the doctor gave me this tablet. I didn't like that he just gave me this tablet and like he didn't want to find out the root cause. And then they go to the naturopath and try to find a supplement thinking that that's fixing their root cause. Um, yeah. So I'll, I'll digress a lot as well. <laughs> You'll start me on a segue. Good luck. No, 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 no. We'll go in conversation one. Uh, one of the things you thought, um, you said it's fascinating earlier. So, well, two things. One is that women massively under eat, which I, I a thousand percent agree, which you, you, we would know from our, my conversation regarding my partner and some other women that you would work with. Second thing is that women love to massively overtrain, from my opinion, thinking they get obsessed with this mentality of a debit credit society, particularly with calories, which is why I think fucking tracking devices for calories sometimes can be like the devil reincarnated because people get obsessed with hitting certain numbers um what do you have do you have like set calories you tend to like look for women with a minimum per like um for their body weight or how do you work with women like that when you're looking to try and bring them up because obviously a big part of that is predominantly psychological where they've got a fear of gaining weight and getting fat and not understanding that they actually have to, to eat food to get their body to start to actually work correctly do you want to explain maybe some of the mechanisms behind that? Um, yeah, so, I mean, there's a lot of points and you you might have to rein me back in, so I'm sorry. Right. Um, go wild. But, <laughs> go wild. The, so the, the first thing that I think everyone has to understand is that men and women are very different, like we just are. Men only have to deal with testosterone. We have a whole myriad of hormones that are at play 
and through every single menstrual cycle they're doing different things men is like a light switch on and off whereas we're like one of those like um synthesizer boards where it's like all those different switches to to play with so what a man does for results and training is not going to be the same thing a woman does or, or should do to get results like we are not small men we I remember doing this seminar, um, attending this seminar that was like training the female athlete and their, their basic biggest takeaway from it was what they taught was that women can handle more volume because we lift less weight than men. So therefore our total tonnage is smaller. Ergo, we can lift, uh, do more volume. And I remember at the time being like, oh, that doesn't sound right. This is fucking years ago where I didn't know my ass from my elbow. And I remember at the time being like, that doesn't sound right, but okay. Um, and it's, it couldn't be farther from the truth. We're going to have periods through our cycle as well where we can handle more volume, handle more intensity, handle more strength work, where it's going to be better suited to be doing other, other work as well. So and that is a, as, a, as a start, women and men are completely different and you cannot look at them as like anything, anything similar, but you can't look at like what a man does with calories in versus calories out and the intensity he brings with his training sessions because men have te- like fuck tons more testosterone and androgens are super protective when we're talking about stress physiology and we don't have that so that's like the start there right when we start to dig into then what women need to do to to achieve those sorts of results or like what they need to be focusing on there isn't really like a set macro that I would give them like, yes, every woman, I would go to like 2.2 to 2.8 grams of, of protein per kilogram of body weight. That would be across the board. You'd really want everyone hitting that. Although men will probably tolerate a little bit more. That will be like one of the starting ones. But for really from there, it's going to be important for every single client because you are going to have some clients who are like, in theory, they're um with their physical activity level how what their bmr is they need to be eating here and then you actually give them those calories and you're like shit this is this is just way too much for them or this is not enough for them and then you increase it's like it's that that playing and guessing game i don't like to drop women's fats down below 0.7 grams per kilogram of body weight and preferably like to keep it at about one gram per kilogram of body weight so a 60 five kilogram 65 kilo woman is going to be eating about 65 grams of fat today um as a minimum her protein would be like 2.2 to 2.8 so it's like like 2.5 so whatever that is like 100 and what 40 grams ish those would be like the minimums um and then from there we'd be looking at cool what is her um calories that we're trying to hit based on her her training volume and, and all of that and then working off that, keeping in mind that post ovulation, you're burning more calories. That's also something that I keep in the back of my mind with actually increasing calories potentially, allowing for more refeeds post ovulation. Um, not like not that I ever guilt clients if they go off plan, but really reassuring them like, cool, if after you ovulate, you need more food, eat more food. It's not the, the worst thing in the world, like those extra 300 calories. You're in a 300 calorie deficit because of, because of your metabolic capacity. Um, so those would be the, the major, major things that we're looking at. Um, but yeah, it's, it's really important and it's really difficult because I think more so, and like I said, with, with the variants of Australia to UK, I really feel like the UK is still heavily focused on like bodybuilding and really into body composition whereas more so in Australia we're starting to shift a little bit away from that and move into health and then it's hard if, if you've got you know your partner is looking shredded and schmick and about to compete that is challenging as well you want to you know it's it's part of your values you value training you value um, what your physique looks like and that that's a big part of your identity so you want to look like that as well and then it's like comparing which is the closest thing you have to you start to compare which may be your partner who's a male and that's obviously the worst person to be comparing against 
it's a, an interesting topic actually so uh first thing you said about um men and women not being able to train the same i think is hugely true so me and my partner charlie try and train together a bit but it, it doesn't really work i'm like 50 kilos heavier than her i need i only want to do two sets of everything she wants to do four so like it's not really and i'm about a foot taller than her so it's like the congruence i think with that is a lot there's like we are very different animals in terms of men to women so i think there's a huge amount i agree with there and i think in terms of what you said in terms of i've even noticed with my own progress over the years that in terms of the stronger i've got the less i have to do like because i just don't need to create i can create so much stimulus from one two sets i don't need to be doing 25 30 sets during work i only need probably like 16 and that's more than enough yeah it's and i mean 16 16 working sets is a lot still mm. Like even when you think of um, what what you would have done to build that muscle in the first place, you know, thirty working sets. That that to me, I would never put a woman into thirty working sets. That that is absolutely crazy. You would have I I would lean more into like women doing working to like a probably higher RPE, and then men do um, across the board. I would say that the men I train would I'd be more comfortable having them at like a six to seven RP, which is like a like three to five RIR. Um I don't use RIR, but that's where like they'd still get a hell of a lot of stimulus in that rep range, particularly if they're working with anything like tempo. Whereas with a woman, once you pull them down to that low of an RPE, like it, it's almost like she's not doing anything with what like it's a six to seven um, RPE might be like a two kilo dumbbell for them in some instances. So I find that women, you can actually at, at certain points of their cycle push intensity a lot more than you would with a man without them burning out, provided that there's obviously less working sets. But the thought of like the thought of a woman being in like even 20 working sets with that high of an RPE just. <laughs> <laughs> I see that a lot. And if anyone listening, RP is rate of perceived exertion. And then what you mentioned as well as reps and reserve. That's if Dean's list, Dean listens to this. Uh, Dean, who's helping me my prep, is trying to get me to do reps and reserve stuff. I have a bit of a fight back against it because I don't like it. So I just don't, I don't like do forced reps and stuff like that. But um, my issue with reps and reserve, for example, is that it's too you're thinking too much about how many more reps have I got left. It's too difficult of a thing to really quantify in some respect. In particular, if someone's in a very aggressive dieting phase, your strength can change quite quickly. So I know we're going massive off topic here, but that's a bit of an opinion I have on that, to be fair. I don't know if that's Look, a model you're a fan of or not. I I do like RP. I mean, RP and reps and reserve is the same shit to me. You're either working to RP8, which is the same as two reps, two to three reps in reserve we're working to two to three reps in reserve which is the same thing as rpea um we we actually had this discussion in the supplement needs group chat because some of the boys are heavily into the um what percentage of your one rm and some of them are more into the the rir and rpe i tend to lean into the rpe because even though there are going to be some days where you feel like a bag of shit and you can't lift as much that's still your rpe for that day whereas that percentage of that one rm isn't that rpe for that day um so i i don't mind rpe um it's not something i would ever use with like a real novice client because they don't know how to train with intensity at all whereas someone who is a little bit more in the like intermediate you know experience level of lifting they will understand rpe so i i, I don't mind it but i don't use it all the time so uh, to go into the next topic I want to briefly bring up was looking at maybe some of the external factors in people's environments that people don't look at in terms of which have uh, a big effect on fat loss, hormones and overall health. Um, are there any red flags that maybe you have got something as a potential issue in your environment that's affecting you? And then secondly, what would you what would you start looking for? Um, so when you start to go into like what is an endocrine disruptor and what may be in your environment, the, the list of things is absolutely insane. Um, I say the exact same thing every single time someone asks me this. 
And it's sort of the same two things. One, we, the way evolution works is not on a generational pattern. We don't have those kinds of huge leaps in evolution from mum to son. And from the industrial revolution, we have had huge changes to how our food is processed, how we, we deal with lives, how much like pollution is out in the atmosphere, all of this shit, right? All of that is different. And then two, in the world of endocrine disruptors, one plus one doesn't equal two. So you may think that it's like, oh, well, you know, just a little bit of perfume here and makeup there. And that's fine. But for you, because when you start to like really go back to like in utero development, you know, when you were born, what your what your little mini puberty was, what your puberty was, what was the quality of like food and, and nutrients your mum was getting when she was pregnant with you? What were the quality of your nutrients and everything that your grandma was exposed to when she was pregnant with your mum? Because when your mum was, when your grandma was pregnant with your mum, your mum had all of her eggs that she was going to ovulate with. So all of that is going to impact that quality. So all of those are really important things to remember when you think about, endocrine disruptors and what may be a trigger for you in our normal homes the amount of shit that is actually destroying our systems is insane tap water um there was actually a and i'll have to find the paper so please don't don't quote me on it but there was actually a rounding error in the amount of chlorine that was in tap our tap water in australia for the last 15 years and there was a rounding error where it was like some crazy amount more than it actually than it actually should have been that's like a safe level so tap water perfumes you know, your sense, your, your fake sense that everyone's using, those are huge things that are going to be disrupting your endocrine system. All of our seed oils, all of the plastics. So the, this is the thing that um, bodybuilders just, it's, it's because you're obviously training so hard and what's the first thing you do when you come home? You can't be fucked cooking. So what, what does everyone do? They pull out one of those pre-made meals with a little plastic cover in its little plastic tub. And the first thing they do is just chuck it in a microwave. It's only recently that we've gone, shit, BPAs are as bad as they are. And you've got now industries changing their processes and getting rid of BPAs. What about all of the other BPs? Like we, we don't have enough research. We have so much research and evidence to show about like microplastics and all the toxins in plastics and what it's doing to our body but we don't have, you know, extensive research about the long-term effects of this specific, you know, th thing that we're finding in plastics. It's, it's crazy when you actually start to look at it. But, yeah, I'd be looking at water and making sure it's filtered, so not, not drinking tap water or not or trying not to drink from plastic. Um, the example I give is the flimsier the plastic the more you want to stay away from it. So like your cling wrap and your like really crappy water bottles that like you squeeze and they turn into like crumpled paper. Anything that's like a, a fake scent. So all of those vanilla things that you stick into your wall or any of your perfumes, all of those are going to be huge. Plastics are going to be huge things that impact our hormones and our endocrine system. Um, even things like cleaning products. All of those, you know, borax has been shown to actually impact fertility and it's a hugely popular cleaning product and, um, and product that's used in laundry, like powders. And it, it literally says on the label, it's been shown to impact fertility. Um, so those are like really major things for people, like going back to what we were saying, if people don't read nutrition labels, people don't read fucking labels of, of the shit they're using to clean or put put on their body or anything um there's a huge disconnect there but those would be the major things that i'd look to then obviously once you start looking into like the, the quality of the house you live in is there black mold what is the ventilation like all of this stuff is going to play huge it's, going, it's just going to have huge impacts on your health but like we said right it's a slippery slope of going crazy and you'll eventually live in hemp pants out in the woods and be like fuck it I'm just I'm not going to be around anything um but obviously these are things that we really start to look to when someone is having 
health problems. Um, and really what we'll start to dig into if there's like, cool, we've started to see this happening with our thyroid, what, what is going on? Yeah, that, that makes a lot of sense. Um, one last thing I wanted to delve into because I found this fascinating because I never realised when you mentioned it is uh, talking about, uh, I tried to minimise gluten because I have a lot of issues with it, is the fact that gluten-free oats aren't actually completely gluten-free. Um, do you want to explain why that's the case? Because that's probably a fascinating thing that I learned from you from the, the call we had a few weeks ago. Yeah, so with oats, um, oats are this really funny thing. So anyone who's celiac, unless they have a biopsy prior to and then after eating oats, should stay away from them. So the protein in wheat that a lot of people have sensitivities to is called gliadin. Oats have a protein called abenin, and that's what um, a lot of people who have celiac disease or gluten sensitivities are still sensitive to. It's not technically gluten, so it's gluten-free, but you will still have people being sensitive to this protein, maybe not to the same extent, but still having issues. What that gluten-free, um, like big banner that's plastered on oats as well, is that it also means it's not processed in a facility that has cross-contamination with gluten because gliadin and abenin are two different things. So yes, it's technically gluten-free, but if you have gluten sensitivities and or celiac disease, you probably shouldn't be eating oats unless you're going to go to the extreme of doing the biopsies and seeing what's going on with your guts. It makes a lot of sense. Um... Just want to say firstly thank you so much for your time Olivia. um it's fascinating we could go on for hours in terms of different topics and bits and pieces where's the best place for anyone to connect with you find out more about you i know where you're the lead female educator at supplement needs um you got any subtle plugs or anything you want to uh, anyone to check out yeah you can find me on the lifting doula or you can head over to femtech f-e-m-dot-t-e-k so femtech is the new wearable that we briefly touched on at the very beginning of this that I've been working on for the last two and a half years. And it's actually a wearable for women um, and it syncs into an app where we're tracking your menstrual cycle, but the it's a smart ring. And what it basically is, is the first smart ring, which is a menstrual focused um, piece of technology. It's tracking all of your biomarkers overnight. And because it's actually taking your temperature overnight as well, it's giving indications of when you ovulated so I know we touched on you know when you actually ovulate you're burning more calories after you might change your training um that distinction is really important of finding when you ovulate and with the ring that's tracking your basal temperature overnight that's obviously going to be one of the easiest ways to track that so those would be the two places you can find me and any information surrounding that pleasure thank you so much for your time for everyone listening to the episode make sure you leave us five star review make sure you go check out Olivia's um, Instagram. Share the podcast, your stories, get more listeners to check this out and we'll see you in the next episode very soon.